Hello and welcome to Chasing Perfection, a UConn women's basketball podcast. I'm Daniel Connolly here with Megan Gower. Tonight was supposed to be UConn women's basketball's matchup at South Carolina. Instead, the Huskies traveled out to DePaul last night and played what was easily the game of the season, an 80-78 victory over the Blue Demons, nine lead changes, three ties, and a Caroline Ducharme game winner with 1.6 seconds left. Ironically, it's UConn's first game winner, at least first game winner that they've ended up on the right side of since Keisha Swanier beat DePaul at DePaul with 1.6 seconds left back in 2008. Pretty wild coincidence, but a great game of basketball, back and forth action the entire time, and a game winner. Can't get much more than that. No, it was a very exciting game and a lot of fun. And UConn actually won, so all around good. I was talking with someone after the game about when was the last time UConn even won a game that was a single possession? I'm like, was it Tulane back in 2017? Was there another one that I can't think of in one of those years? And I went, oh, that's right. It was Baylor last year in the Elite Eight. Very (laughs) quick to forget about that and basically all of last season. Yep. Yeah. I've had to think about it for a bit too, but you are correct. It's definitely better. There is so much to try and unpack with this game, but I think the first thing that we need to talk about is Caroline Ducharme because a couple episodes ago, or maybe it was last episode, I said that Caroline Ducharme was starting to remind me of Paige Beckers, not necessarily in the same way as a player, not necessarily the same impact on the game, but she was consistently doing things that were really impressive for a freshman. And after last night, Caroline Ducharme is really starting to remind me of Paige Beckers in the same way that when UConn needs a basket, who do they go to? Caroline Ducharme. When UConn needed a basket last year, it was Paige Beckers. The end of the game, who was getting the ball? Paige Beckers. Gino said after the game, in no uncertain terms, that Caroline was going to be the one that got the ball. No ifs, ands, or buts. She got it. She made a play with it. And she scored to give UConn the win. Every single time she steps on the floor, it just feels like she's doing something different, something incredible. And she's really quickly starting to put together one of the best freshman seasons in UConn history. It's still not Paige Becker's level, just because... No one's ever been Paige Becker's level. Paige was scoring, but she was also assisting. She was also shooting at such a high clip. She was just making everyone around her better. And Caroline Ducharme isn't necessarily doing that. And that shouldn't be a knock on her, but she's still been really, really good. She's averaging almost 20 points since she entered the starting lineup. She has just been so, so good. And the fact that she not only hit the game winner against DePaul, but she hit some big shots the rest of the game as she's pretty much done since she started starting. Every single episode, we're talking about something different with Caroline Ducharme. And it's just a matter of what's it going to be next, not can she continue this? It's just incredible to continue watching. Yeah, it's been really fun to watch what she's kind of been able to build from that last quarter of the Notre Dame game when Paige went down. She had a really good fourth quarter and then she's just kept going from there. And it's obviously just in a completely different spot than she was 
what, what was that seven games ago now i don't know it's been a lot of games but i think it's actually 10 games i, I don't know how it's somehow but it feels like it took like three months to play the first six games and then yeah. like 10 games in two weeks but anyways so 10 games later she's obviously done the world's ahead of where she was in that game and obviously uconn's much better for it I mean, I think we're pretty clearly seeing a player that regardless of when this team gets fully healthy and everyone's back is going to be a starter come March. Well, here's something crazy. Nico Mule got shut down after the Notre Dame game, which was December 5th, and she only returned on January 9th and missed three games. Kristen Williams entered COVID protocols on January 16th. She returned 10 days later and missed three games in no world should those two players have missed the exact same number of games, but that's exactly how it played out just because of obviously the Christmas break and the COVID pause and everything else. But that totally warps the concept of time. UConn's now played, I think it's been seven games in January alone. They played six games before Christmas. It felt like right. Or seven games before Christmas. The season has been so weird just in terms of its pacing. Yeah, it's been very strange, but. Okay, eight games before Christmas and seven games in January alone. (laughs) (laughs) That just breaks my brain as this entire season has done. (laughs) I feel like it definitely, I mean, it feels like that. No, like it feels like it's been crazy busy for the last few weeks. And like, oh, definitely. Really but I just don't <laughs> understand how those two timelines work out. No, me neither. <laughs> also, not even just in the month of January, in the last three weeks, yeah. they didn't play the first week of January. <laughs> yeah. And I think we've kind of seen that now that they're starting to get a good cadence of games, and especially now that they're actually getting fully healthy, we are what 10 minutes into the podcast and we haven't even mentioned that AZ FUD played her first game which I don't know if that says more about the way that Caroline Ducharme played or whatever but they're finally starting to get healthy they're finally starting to get some continuity between the lineups that they're putting out there between the starting lineups between the players that are healthy it's not just they're scraping by as best they can with whoever's available in any given game we're starting to see some progress come out of actually having games in a row, actually having consistent lineups. That was, I mean, not that what they had at DePaul was a consistent lineup, but I think we saw at DePaul that they had the players and now the next step is going to be making the continuity because that was a really, really good team performance at DePaul. And I think, you can kind of brush DePaul off and say, oh, well, they're not ranked. And historically, UConn beats the crap out of DePaul. So why should that be a close game? But this is not a normal DePaul team. From what I can remember, I don't think DePaul's anyone had someone at the level that Anissa Morrow is. She is a phenomenal player for a freshman, mm-hmm. and it is going to be extremely painful to see how UConn tries to deal with her over the next three seasons. Yeah, she is fantastic. I was really impressed with her. I haven't seen her play a whole ton this year, but I think also I think UConn is probably the toughest test that she's faced this year. Not that DePaul hasn't played some tougher teams, but they haven't really played any teams that have that size kind of inside. And UConn obviously has that. I'm not trying to say that Olivia Nelson Dota is like the best player in the country, but they have 
significant talent in the post and she still goes out there and puts up 30 and 14 I think it was like just an insane performance from her she's going to be a lot of fun to watch for the next four years three years whatever she ends up staying and she's also probably going to give UConn a lot of headaches in that span it's not a great comparison to make in the immediate aftermath of this game just because she didn't play well but I'm talking about Aaliyah Edwards Reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of Anissa Moro. I, I should say Anissa Moro reminds me a lot of Aaliyah Edwards when Aaliyah Edwards is playing well, just in the way that opposing bigs can't handle her size, her physicality, her strength. It would be really fun to watch Aaliyah Edwards when she's actually on her game, not whatever ghost has taken up residence in Aaliyah Edwards' body right now. That would be a really, really fun matchup, and it's disappointing that we didn't get a chance to see that last night. Yeah, agreed. Though I hopefully we'll get to see it this season, assuming that Malia Edwards is able to find what she was at last season. Because I feel, like, I mean, we have one more game scheduled with DePaul later in Big East play, and I would be pretty surprised to not see this be the, the Big East tournament championship game as well. And that would be a great Big East Tournament Championship game. Even if UConn is 100% healthy by that point and rolling, I still think DePaul would give him some trouble, even if it doesn't come down to a final shot or even the last five minutes of the fourth quarter. It would still be a really good tune-up to head into the NCAA Tournament. Yeah, exactly. I think either way, it's going to be a tougher game, a tough opponent, an opponent that's going to be in the NCAA Tournament, so a tournament-caliber opponent, I'm also excited to see what DePaul just does in the NCAA tournament. I think what was also really impressive about this game for UConn, and I told you my feeling about it after the game, it almost felt like the anti-Louisville game for UConn in that it was, for the most part, a close game for the first three quarters. It was back and forth. Both teams were in it the entire time, even if the scoreline did swap one way or another a couple times. And then it started getting down into crunch time. And this time, UConn was hitting its shots in those big moments, whereas against Louisville, it wasn't hitting those shots. And it was coming up with defensive stands when it didn't do that against Louisville. And yeah, it still made plenty of mistakes down the stretch, throwing the ball away, turning it over, letting DePaul back into that game realistically. But it still made the plays it had to, and it made the most important play of the game with Caroline Ducharme's game winner. So I thought that was what was most impressive to me about the performance, how they kind of flipped the script on Louisville, and now they have a really good, close win, and they figured out how to win those type of games, which is something that they never really figured out how to do in the post-Brianna Stewart years. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that stood out to me too is like they didn't just keep letting it spiral out of control because I mean, granted, you had very different personnel available for this game, but in the Oregon game, right, they go up and then they get down and it just kept spiraling. And in this game, they went up, then they get down. DePaul went on a crazy run in the second quarter. UConn goes into the locker room down nine, but they came out and came back from that instead of just allowing it to keep turning into more mistakes and more mistakes. Um, and I think that was a good sign to see as well. I really thought they were going to get blown out in the second half. I really <laughs> felt that way with the way the second half ended with just the body language and the look on the faces of the UConn players. We saw that against Oregon. I thought it was going to be a repeat. The fact that 
Gino laid into them at halftime from what it sounds like from what he said. And they came out and responded the way they did. I think it was four straight points right out of the half. And then another quick run right after that. That was a really good sign of resiliency for this team. Something that we haven't necessarily seen them do a whole lot this year. The big thing that we talked about earlier in the year is their fourth quarter collapses. This was the first time in a close game where the fourth quarter was their best quarter of basketball in terms of the situation, in terms of the importance. Yeah, they played well in the first quarter, but DePaul wasn't hitting three-pointers. They weren't really in their rhythm yet. So it was just, I don't want to say a battle of superpowers because DePaul's not a superpower. And realistically, UConn isn't right now either, but it was just a battle of two really good basketball teams and UConn came out on top. So that's got to be a huge confidence boost for the team. That's got to be a big boost for their mentality. And now, as I said, you could keep, building on all these players being available, Kristen Williams is going to be able to play more minutes, even though it's not like she was all that limited against DePaul. AZ Fudd is going to be able to become more of a contributor and they're going to be able to figure out what her role is better in the offense. Caroline Ducharme's still there. If you know Westbrook's not going to have as much pressure on her to contribute, maybe that can get her going again. Nika Mule can just pull all the strings and she's been scoring at a good clip too. So this is the first time all season where I really feel like things are starting to come together and we don't have to mark it with the asterisks of, okay, but they beat the crap out of bad Big East teams. DePaul's a good team. They looked really good against them, and that should be a really positive sign going forward. Yeah, exactly. I think especially in that fourth quarter, they looked really good. I mean, they were 11 from 13 in the fourth quarter. That is the total opposite of every close fourth quarter that has happened so far this year. Um, And I think the other thing that stands out there is that it's the freshmen that led the way, too. Caroline Ducharme had 10 points in that fourth quarter, including the the game winner. And AZ Fudd went three for three and scored seven points. I mean, we've, like, mentioned that AZ Fudd is back five times now, but we just – incredible game back from her too we heard what on Tuesday that she wasn't going to play in the SNY broadcast right before the game tips off they mentioned that they were going to try to get her a few minutes she comes out she plays 22 minutes scores 15 points goes three of six from deep basically single-handedly brought like UConn's three-point percentage for the game into 40 percent and just like a really, really solid game back from her. She had a few turnovers. I don't think that's anything to be worried about for her first game back as a freshman. I feel like we're really going to start to see over the next couple of weeks what easy foot can be, because I don't really think we saw that at the beginning of the season. Yeah, that was quite a turnaround in the span of a day. And her first appearance also wasn't even anything that special. She came in, traveled immediately, and didn't really do anything else before subbing out after two minutes. And I seriously thought that might have been all we were going to see of AZ, just because, okay, she wasn't supposed to play. Two minutes isn't going to hurt her. I do think it does make sense that she was able to play, because when Gino talked about her on Tuesday, he wasn't saying that the foot wasn't healed. His comments were that she wasn't ready to play because of conditioning, or at least that's the way he made it seem. So if she went out there and she felt healthy enough to play and felt that she could go up and down the court a few times, why not give her a chance, throw her out there and see what she can do? And I thought it was really promising that she started one of five from the floor, but that didn't phase her. And she finished the game five of five. (laughs) That's the type of shooter she is. And I know we talked about it months ago when we saw her in the preseason, but her shot is just a thing of beauty. Even the shots that she misses are some of the most 
pretty misses you've ever seen on a basketball court. She is such an incredible shooter. And I think what I, what really stood out to me against DePaul was we saw more of her game because earlier in the season, I remember after the exhibition, Gino said, she's not just a, she's not just a shooter. She's a basketball player flat out, but we didn't really see that in her first few games. She kind of held around the three point line, which that very well could have been due to her foot injury. We don't know how much that affected her, but Gino also called her timid a lot. She deferred to her older teammates. She wasn't being aggressive and she wasn't, she didn't seem to have the confidence in her own abilities to go make plays. She looked like a number one player against DePaul. She was confident with the ball in her hands. She seemed like she was comfortable going wherever she needed to go on the court. She made nice passes. She shot the ball when she got it and she had enough space. She drove, pulled up, got to the rim. It was a really all around performance 22 minutes in a game she wasn't even supposed to play in was by far the best she's ever played this season. I think that says a lot about what she can do in a couple weeks once she gets her full conditioning and actually has some practice time with the team because she barely practiced with the team. And I think it also goes to show how much she was probably limited by the foot injury earlier in the year. Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of being limited by the foot injury. And also, I feel like so much of the pressure is off right now, yeah. too. When she came in, you know, she was number one recruit in the nation, generational talent. Everyone's like, what's she going to do compared to this huge season that Paige Beckers just put together? Now it's midway through the season. AT Flood being the number one freshman in the country is not the main storyline in college basketball. And there's just a lot less pressure on her to go out there and be a generational talent and to, like, be this player that's going to lead UConn when she doesn't need to be. Um, so I think that probably helps too. It's just, there's not that pressure anymore. Right. That is a big part of it. It's also, this is feels like one of the first times that we can start looking at this team and seeing a path to being legitimately good because before it was all projection. Okay. If these guys all keep playing well, and if AZ comes back and she plays well, and if Paige comes back and she plays well, they might have something cooking here, but Caroline Ducharme is one of the best scorers in the country right now. I don't think there's anything that can deny that. And Kristen Williams played really well, I thought, in her first game back from COVID, which continues her strong play from before she got it. Nika Mules just continuing to do what they need her to do. Now you add in AZ Fudd, who, again, should only be getting better. And then Paige Beckers is still coming back at some point. The depth that we spent so much time talking about in the offseason is finally starting to show itself. Now it's like, okay, Paige is eventually coming back. Who do you take out of the starting lineup to put her in? Because you can't take out Caroline Ducharme. You just can't. I don't think they're going to take out Nika Mule because they really like what she brings. Kristen Williams isn't going to the bench. Do you take out Dorka Juhas and go with only one big at the start of the game? Do you end up putting Nika Mule on the bench and having her be a spark plug as a reserve. We're back to the, how are they going to make all these pieces fit? But this is the first time where it feels like we have real tangible evidence as to why it's going to be that not just, well, all these players look like they might be really good. Right. And I feel like a very refreshing problem to be trying to figure out after a full season or a half a season of who do they have enough players to field a team that can maybe win a game. So, 
it's exciting to be at a point where the only hypothetical is, okay, what does it look like when Paige comes back? And that's really, at this point, not that far off. Look, based on the way that the recent injury reports have gone, I'm expecting us to find out that Paige Beckers actually played last night at DePaul. <laughs> that's just the way things have been rolling at this point. We haven't asked, you know, in a little bit, it just, I mean, it's not even to the point where it's at the eight weeks yet. So I don't think it's really relevant to ask until we get into February, but we're definitely starting to approach a page Becker's watch type area. She seems like she's been in pretty good spirits. She's moving around pretty well without the crutches, despite still having the big bulky brace on the fact that you could potentially plug her in for even just 10 minutes. That could really, really change the look of this team in a good way. So getting closer to that every day that passes. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we're already, this team is already worlds ahead of where they were three weeks ago, but that's not far off either. Right. I still feel, I feel even better now that Paige Becker's absence is going to end up being exactly what this team needed because what we saw last night wouldn't have happened even if Paige Beckers was out there way back in November because it was Paige versus everyone and the rest of the team was happy to just defer to her. Who knows if Caroline Ducharme would have even gotten this opportunity if every other guard didn't get hurt. Who knows if AZ Fudd would have gotten over the nerves and the, the timidness if she was just playing this whole time. I mean, she probably would have, but it seems like with every single return we get. And as the team puts another piece together, it just seems to be getting bigger and bigger. And all this adversity is going to end up helping them because there's going to be a game in the NCAA tournament where it's back and forth in the fourth quarter. And it's going to be the team that makes the most shots is going to win. And is going to go to the final fours, going to go to the national championship or is going to win the national championship. UConn's at least proven to themselves that they can do it. And it's not just, all right, every single time we've been in the situation entering the fourth quarter, we've fallen apart. So confidence is such a huge thing in general, but I think especially with this team, if they have a lot of confidence and then you add Paige back in, ideally that only takes them to the next level. Hopefully it doesn't just revert back to, okay, Paige is back. We can all relax now. Right. And I think the fourth quarter thing is a big part of that too, because not only do they have the confidence that they can pull it together in the fourth quarter, but you're pulling it together with a few different people. I mean, Caroline Dutarm, like I said, and Easy Fudd were really big, but Kristen had a couple of big baskets in the fourth quarter as well. So now you've got three players that you can kind of look to to score those big points. And then you're going to add Paige Becker's back, which of course you can look to to score those big baskets. So that's going to be huge. I think down the stretch too, is that it's not just one player that has to be able to step up and do that. Right. Imagine an end of a game situation where you have AZ FUD out on the wing to potentially shoot a go ahead or game tying three pointer. And you have Caroline Ducharme who can basically go wherever she wants with the ball and Paige Beckers, who can create a shot from anywhere and probably make it. You can't really double-team anyone because, especially if you start with Paige Beckers having the ball, she's going to be able to find whoever's open. So you try and double-team her, Caroline Ducharme's open, Paige is going to find her, game's going to be over, game's going to be tied, whatever it is. That's a really good problem for UConn to have. And also another thing about AZ is that she was hitting shots in big moments. It wasn't like she was just 
only scoring when UConn was up eight, nine, 10 points. She had one run, 5-0 run by herself where she helped take the lead for UConn. I think another one of her shots put UConn ahead after trailing. So the fact that UConn's young players are stepping up in big moments and you still don't have Paige, that is just, can't even express how good that is for UConn going forward. Yeah, exactly. It's all these pieces coming together now in a game like this, and they're going to have a whole nother game together in a couple of weeks against Tennessee, which is a tough team too, before they get Paige Beckers back. Like those couple of games with everything else in between, it's going to put set this team up well, I think, for when Paige Beckers gets back and you're starting to look towards, okay, now what do they do in March? So now that we have the benefit of hindsight, I think we can very comfortably say that the decision to cancel the South Carolina game and instead play DePaul couldn't have been any better, but we still said at the time when it happened that that was the right decision to make because it doesn't benefit South Carolina to have a blowout win. Although I am a little curious how that game would have gone knowing that Kristen and AZ were going to play in it. UConn still loses, but maybe it wouldn't have been the blowout that we expected it to be, but still, UConn plays a conference game against a good team in its conference, and that game couldn't have gone any better for UConn. UConn couldn't have learned more from that game if it tried. South Carolina got a conference game in against Ole Miss. Neither team has to see each other another time where if they face each other in the NCAA tournament, it'll be their third time playing each other and there will be no secrets between the two. All around, just a great, great decision not to play that game. And all thanks to Don Staley. <laughs> We're finally saying something great about Don Staley on the podcast. <laughs> Look, I've been nice to Don Staley plenty. She just needs to stop <laughs> saying stupid things all the time. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, no, agreed. I think it was the right decision as well. I mean, South Carolina gets this conference win today. It's important for them in terms of that they played one less game. Tennessee still hasn't lost in the conference, though they are trailing right now. Um, and, you know, puts them in the position to win the SEC, which is important. I don't think UConn would have gotten that much out of playing South Carolina. Like you said, they were going to lose the game. I don't think what this team needed was another loss. I feel like the like the tough game against DePaul and coming out with the win, it's probably what this team needed. They needed something to go right. Oh, definitely. And just as we talked about earlier, you need to see the results happen because as Gino said, you can talk about things as many times as you want in practice, but until you experience it in games, until you, as he said, throw the ball away and potentially lose the game. And until you're in those situations, you can't really get a feel of it. And it reminded me of a conversation I had. I want to say it was with Gabby Williams back in the day, back in the day, he says, as if it wasn't like four years ago, where they had just blown out their 700th opponent in a row and it wasn't a close game and, or maybe they're going into a big game. And I remember asking her, you know, how can you be prepared for potentially having a close game in the fourth quarter? And she said, Oh, well coach puts us in these situations and practice all the time. So we feel like we're really prepared. And obviously with the way that the South or not the South Carolina, the Mississippi state and the Notre Dame times two final fours went those teams Absolutely, we're not prepared to play in close games. So aside from everything else we've talked about with the silver linings to Paige Becker's injuries, they wouldn't have gotten these type of games if she's she was out there this whole time, and they wouldn't have gotten these experiences, and they wouldn't have learned how to play in these close games 
which is what sunk them in the past. Obviously, they beat Baylor in a close game last year, but that one felt a little more like they were hanging on by the seat of their pants instead of going out there and actively winning the game. So it's so valuable to this team. And regardless of how the rest of the season turns out, I mean, very well could end in another final four loss and it all becomes moot because what difference does it make if you end in the same spot every year? But if UConn does end up figuring it out and winning the national championship, I think we're going to look back at this DePaul game at being a really important turning point, similar to the way that we did with Arkansas last year. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think even honestly, this team like getting to the final four, like with everything they've been through, I don't think that that was maybe something that looked as likely. Granted, you knew they were going to get Paige Beckers back and all these pieces back, but I think seeing it come together without Paige Beckers makes it feel a lot more likely that they're getting there. I mean, they're getting there. Like, I'm not saying they're not going to the final four. They are. <laughs> like, I just think yeah. it, like you feel, I think after watching that DePaul game, you feel more like the path to that is very clear. <laughs> the vibes are good. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that's probably the first time all season where we can truly say that the vibes are actually good because the vibes certainly weren't good before Paige got hurt. Regardless, yeah. they, they were better when they were beating the crap out of Butler and DePaul, but whatever vibes you might've had were quickly squashed against Oregon. It's the first time there's actually some good feelings about the team. Yeah. So the vibes are good. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of the NCAA tournament on Thursday, the selection committee revealed its top 16 seeds. UConn is a number 11 overall team. They are a three seed. And if the season ended today, they would be going out to lovely Spokane, Washington instead of Bridgeport because of the NCAA's rule that you can't have multiple teams from the same conference in the same regional if you can help it. There are four teams from the SEC and they're... Go ahead, sorry. Well, it's not an official rule. It's just a guideline. No, so there, there is an official bracketing rule, and it's that the top four teams from a conference can't be slated into the same region. So if they're on the top four lines. So if you have anywhere from two to four teams from the same conference on the top four seed lines, they can't go in the same bracket as each other. Okay. So because of that, the SEC and Big 12 both have four teams in the current 16-team field. That means there wasn't a way to put UConn in Bridgeport without breaking that rule, which is why they're currently out in Spokane. UConn's played three teams that are in the top 16 reveal, obviously number one, South Carolina, number five, Louisville, and number 14, Oregon, all of which were losses. And they also have a game coming up against Tennessee, who, if the season ended right now, would be on the one line as as the number four overall team. But with that game still on the schedule, with UConn still likely winning a lot of games the rest of the year, the picture is going to change. Now is not the time to start worrying about whether or not you have to start booking a flight to Spokane. I think there's the chances that that happens. I don't want to say aren't high, but I feel like there's a better chance UConn still ends up in Bridgeport than UConn has to go out to Spokane. Yeah, a big thing too with like these conferences having four teams on 
the top 16 seats right now is they all have to play each other. So people are going to, teams are going to lose games. Things are going to shift around a lot still. So yeah, like you said, definitely not time to book a flight to Spokane. If you have tickets for Bridgeport, it is not time to sell them live. We just waited out. We're literally one game. Like if Tennessee loses right now, the entire like who's in what region shifts completely. So um, I think you're, there's a lot more you can take from how teams are seated right now than what region they might be in because one movement there just kind of shifts everything. So as our regional bracket, or nope, not regional. <laughs> as our resident bracketologist, UConn's got that game coming up with Tennessee. Assuming Tennessee is still, let's even just say a top six team mm-hmm. by the time they come to the XL Center on February 6th. If UConn wins that game and then runs the table the rest of the way as we expect them to in Biggie's play, would that be enough to bump them up to the two seeds because it only right now would require them to move up three spots. That's not really that big of a climb, especially still having the number four team right now on your schedule. Yeah. I think if UConn wins out, there's more likely than not, they're going to be on the two line. The other thing that isn't clear to me in this reveal is how they're considering the page Becker's injury. Like I think with Oregon, you can very clearly tell, right? Oregon's a five loss team not a team with the top 16 resume right now, but they come in at four or not four, at a four seed at 14 because everyone's healthy. I can't really tell from where UConn is on here if they've taken it as is like UConn is the team they are today or UConn has page backers. I, I'm not sure what's going on there. So I think that's also a question mark. Like it might be less of a movement if they went out to get to the two line, assuming that that like page backers consideration isn't really fully adjusted for here. I don't I'm know wondering- that it is like taking a quick look at the resumes. I haven't got in depth since it came out, but I think they're kind of seated where their resume is right now. And that kind of makes sense just because right now there's no guarantee page backers is back. Obviously that's the expectation. There's, been nothing to say that she won't come back but at least with Oregon they've had everyone back and they've shown what they can do when everyone's healthy so it's a lot easier to weigh the injuries later when you can see what they do fully healthy if the committee hasn't seen how UConn plays with Paige Becker's back I don't think it's going to happen but who knows maybe Paige Becker's comes back and completely throws off UConn's mojo and it goes back to Paige and everyone else like we saw earlier in the season then that changes the equation so I guess it's probably not a factor right now, but if they do get into the the NCAA tournament with Paige fully healthy for, uh, let's say, six games and the Big East tournament, including the Big East tournament, and they win every single one of those games by a huge margin, then I think the factor probably comes in seeing that they lost to Oregon without her, they lost to Louisville without her, and they lost to Georgia Tech without her. That if you maybe not wipe out those losses, but at least drop their weight a lot. UConn looks a lot better and they basically look like a normal one loss UConn team at that point or a two loss UConn team. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of changes. I just, my guess right now is that it's not really being factored in that like they would have page backers in this bracket. So I think in reality, like if you just make that equation, they move up a little bit. I think if they went out, they're probably pretty handedly on the two line. Like if they beat Tennessee and don't lose any more games, they're probably going to end up on the two line. I think there's a possibility that they lose to Tennessee and still end up on the two line. I think the thing that's going to hold them back there is they don't really have a great win. 
So maybe if you beat DePaul three times, that's enough, and everyone else loses enough, that's enough to put you onto the the two line. But it, I don't know, it could be a little dicey there. But I think if you know they beat Tennessee, they're, I would say I would be pretty shocked to see them. They beat Tennessee and Paige Beckers is back. I would be shocked to see them not on the two line. Right, and I feel like a lot of that's just because there's no one else that's really standing out besides South Carolina. So it feels like all those teams from two to really where UConn is at 11 are going to shift pretty, even really just the entire top 16 is going to shift a lot. So if UConn wins, I feel like by nature, they might not necessarily do a ton to move themselves up, but they might just get helped out by a lot of teams dropping down that are ahead of them at the moment. Yeah, and I think, you know, like, it has four losses, but when you look at the, I mean, Stanford has three losses, and they're the second overall seed. So, like, I don't think that those four losses are going to keep you cut off the two-line. I think we're going to see, by the time that, you know, the actual bracket comes out, a lot of these teams are going to have four or five more losses. So, I think it's, like you said, no one's really standing out outside of South Carolina. Right. And that's been the case since the start of the season. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing now. And UConn's just going to attempt to crash that party. Yeah, exactly. I think the only other team that has a chance to be standing out, like as kind of separated by the end of the season, is a team like Tennessee that really has only lost to Stanford. But they still have to play South Carolina and they still have to play UConn. And I don't think they're going to win both of those games. Looking ahead to UConn's schedule, the Huskies will play at Providence on Sunday, but not the original time or location of the game. So because of the impending snowstorm, that will either drop two inches of snow or 20 inches of snow on us here in New England. The Providence men's basketball game on Saturday has been pushed back to 1.30, or I'm sorry, it's 12.30 at the Dunkin' Donuts Center. UConn women's basketball game at Providence, which was originally 11 at the Dunkin' Donuts Center, has now been pushed back to 7.30 at the high school gym that Providence calls Alumni Hall on campus. SNY is still going to broadcast it. It has to be after Connecticut Ice, which is the entire thing's being broadcast by SNY. But just what a phenomenal slap in the face to Providence's women's basketball program. You've got your biggest opponent of the season coming in. You're actually playing at the Dunkin' Donuts Center for the first time. And the school decides that the men's basketball team is more important. They need to play at the Dunkin' Donuts Center at the time that the women were going to play. They can't play later. They can't play at night. Nope. It has to be on the day and the time that the women's basketball team is going to be there. Women's basketball can go back to their high school gym, the men's practice facility. Nobody comes to their games anyways. I would be so furious if I was involved with the Providence program. I'm mad about it. And I don't even care about Providence. Just, it's just a great job of Providence telling the world that they don't care about women's sports. Yep. <laughs> I think you're pretty much summed up, but it's a really crappy way to handle that. It's unfortunate to see. Also, I think just like a reminder of how sports are handled most places outside of UConn and a handful of other places like South Carolina, Tennessee, but very, it's very frustrating to see that. For like no reason, just move the men's game to a different time. I just, I don't understand. Or move the men's game to Alumni Hall. 
Yeah. That's there's a precedent for that this year. Seton Hall played St. John's at Walsh Gymnasium because the Big East has made it a policy that if you can't get the arena that you rent out, like the Prudential Center for Seton Hall, like the XL Center for UConn men's basketball, like the Dunkin' Donuts Center for Providence, that sucks. Go play at your home gym. You have one on campus. Go use it. That's the Big East policy. Why is all of a sudden the men's basketball game more important to have at the Dunkin' Donuts Center than the women's basketball game? If you want to pretend like your women's basketball program is important and you want to try and make that program something and build a fan base and get some eyes on your program, you know, maybe don't shift it to a gym that most high schools could fit into. There's so many options. Even if it's a TV thing, Providence could have put up a fight and there's no chance that they even pretended to put up a fight. They probably encouraged this idea. So I don't really want to hear a TV argument. Yeah. And sure. Providence men's basketball is probably going to have more fans at the women's game, but that's not the point. They're, they're throwing the women's team out so that the men's team can play at the exact same arena at essentially the same time. It's so ridiculous. And it's just like like the classic argument of men's versus women's sports of like, oh, it draws more and it makes more money. Well, when you invest time and money and all these things into it, yes, it does more. And like, it's just, it's the same like argument you see for every women's sport versus men's sport, but just like magnified into the situation that like, well, yeah, you clearly just aren't putting any effort into this by like just allowing the game to one game that's being played in a venue that would actually probably draw fans because people do come say, UConn play and allocating it to a different time now at a Sunday night in a smaller gym that's just like going to take away the people that would have come to see it yeah and even if okay right now I have been hired as a new athletic director of Providence I would understand not immediately shifting every single women's basketball game to the Dunkin Donuts Center but how about you start next year you play like they were going to do this year, one game against a really good opponent at the Dunkin' Donuts Center at a really good time at a relatively good date, as best you can do. And then you market the hell out of that game. You try and get as many teams, as many parents, as many kids, as many basketball fans as you can to that game. You throw all your marketing into that because if people come and they enjoy it, then they're going to want to come again. And then from there, you, you can try and draw them to the on-campus arena. And if you start filling up the on-campus arena, then you can start building more games at the Dunkin' Donuts Center. And also another part of that comes with having a good team. And if recruits come to a game at the Dunkin' Donuts Center where there's 8,000 there in a 12,000-person arena and they're going nuts and the team is starting to play pretty well, you're going to get fans coming back. That's how you build a program. It's not just about having the team because title nine requires you to, if you're not putting the time and effort into your program, you're just very obviously not caring about it. And you're just keeping it there as a figurehead because you have to. And it's just so obvious that that's what Providence is doing because I think there are some programs in the big East that don't necessarily play at the same rinks or arenas where the women's team is at a different arena than their men's team, but it works like Seton hall, women's basketball, they get really good crowds 
at Walsh Gymnasium. You could tell that they invest in their program. Same thing with Creighton. Creighton has an on-campus gym that's smaller than their downtown arena in Omaha, but they get pretty good crowds there. They have a pretty good program. Your goal should be building to get them to that bigger venue instead of just sitting back at what you have and whatever you get from the women's team. Great. What a fun little niche thing to have. Yeah. And I mean, there's no worse way to try to build your program than just blatantly communicating that you don't care about the women's team by doing something like this, because players don't want to go play somewhere where they're not valued, especially good players. So the first way to not get good talent is to clearly show that you don't value your women's program. Right. And it's not even like they're comparable facilities either. Like if the women only played games at Gamble Pavilion at UConn, which this doesn't even make sense as a comparison (laughs) because the men probably draw less than the women. But if the women only played at Gamble Pavilion and the men split games between Gamble and XL, Gamble is still a very good facility, but it is a high school gym that Providence women's basketball has to play in. It's like 1800 or something ridiculous. I'm fully confident without knowing the exact number that my high school's gym is larger than that. Fully (laughs) confident. There's probably 30 high school gyms in the state that are larger than that. So it's essentially the men's basketball practice facility with seats in it. And that's where the women's team plays. It's so bad. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's their one game that was supposed to be their two. And like, it's in Providence. It is in a drivable distance from Connecticut. There are plenty of UConn fans that you will draw to that game that are actually probably live closer to Providence than they live to Hartford. Like, it's just silly. It's all around silly. Yeah, I'm curious how many tickets they sold to the game. Yeah. It, I mean, in theory, it's under 1,800 just so that you could fit it into the gym. I don't know. I obviously didn't get tickets, but I'm curious if you did get tickets, please let us know if you've heard anything from Providence or what the deal is there, because what if you were going to get 3000 walk-ups just because people knew there were going to be tickets available and wanted to decide day of the game, especially with the snowstorm coming in Mm -hmm. that they were going to go. Now you might not even get them to come to a game and now they might not come to Providence Ooh, we ate at this restaurant across the street from the Dunkin' Donuts Center. And they start telling their friends next year, oh, you guys got to come to Providence with us on this road trip. It was a really fun trip. And like you said, if you live on the border of Connecticut on Rhode Island, or if you live in Rhode Island, a lot of people that teach at UConn live in Rhode Island. Maybe you'll want to go to another game. I know plenty of people that are UConn women's basketball fans, but they go to the women's basketball games at whatever their closest home arena is, whether it's USF, whether it's Vanderbilt, St. Louis, whatever it is, people go to your games if you at least try and get them there. But that's not how you do it. (laughs) So we've got a weird, surprising bit of news to close up with. Mir McLean, who transferred from UConn to Virginia, got a waiver to play immediately. And not only did she get the waiver to play immediately, she is currently playing as we speak. At halftime, she led all scorers with 11 points. I don't have an update immediately on what she's doing. So yeah, the game's (laughs) over. Virginia lost. They played Virginia Tech, though, which is a good team. 
I mean, Virginia's won three games this year. So, but Mir McLean uh, didn't lead all scores. She finished the game with 11 points, but also nine rebounds, uh, a three pointer, five for 11 for the field, and three blocks. So, a pretty good start to her Virginia career for sure. I've never heard of this though. How many players, yeah. if ever, have played for two teams in a single season? That seems like a very dangerous precedent to set if you're the NCAA. Yeah, I'm very surprised about this too. And there's, I haven't seen any details on like what the waiver was, but it seems surprising. Because as far as we know, there was nothing to the transfer other than just, you know, a decision to transfer. So I'm kind of surprised that she got the waiver. Even if there was a reason that she transferred, why should she be allowed to play this season? Yeah. Like it, it's not going to be a scenario in this situation, but I can't think of a good example of someone. What if, what if a player transferred from, let's say DePaul to Dayton? I picked those two schools out of the air. And then those two teams ended up playing in the NCAA tournament. And the player that played at DePaul earlier in the season helps knock DePaul out of the NCAA tournament. How does that really work? Like I'm 100% all for athletes being able to transfer play immediately, but I think I do draw the line at you should be able to leave immediately and go somewhere else because it, in no way do I believe that this was something underhanded or malicious by UVA or Mir McLean. I think it's great that she individually can play this season, but especially in the men's basketball realm, are they going to start trying to get players to transfer midseason and join their team and then get a waiver? It's just a very slippery slope for the NCAA to go up on. So I'm curious if we ever find out what the reasoning is or anything more beyond it why they decided to do something like that. Yeah, it's definitely strange. I wonder if maybe it's just like a number of minutes she actually played so far this season or something that they allowed, but it, it still seems strange. That's true. Wasn't it single digit minutes or it yeah, was close no, if it wasn't? I, I would be shocked if the number is over 10. So, yeah. Good for Mir McLean though. I wish nothing but good things for Mir McLean. Seems like a really good kid, good egg. Has the talent, just didn't really work out at UConn for whatever reason. But very easy player to root for. Yeah, agreed. On that note, that'll do it for this episode of Chasing Perfection. You can follow Megan on Twitter at Megan Gower. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel B. Connolly. Be sure to subscribe to the show, leave a review, tell a friend, read the UConn blog, sign up for the UConn Women's Basketball Weekly. Megan, send us out. If you live in New England, stay warm and safe with our 2 to 20 inches of snow this weekend. (laughs) That'll do it. Thanks for listening.